Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Verity Harding, author of the book AI Needs You, How We Can Change AI's Future and Save Our Own. Verity, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Well, as you can probably tell from the accent, uh, I'm from the UK and I have worked for a really long time in AI, technology and politics. Uh, I started my career as an advisor to the British Deputy Prime Minister a long time ago uh, before spending um, many years at Google and DeepMind. So um, this book is really a combination of all the expertise and knowledge I've gained over those years, merging politics, policy, and technology. I have to say, you you wear that learn that knowledge, that experience very lightly in, in the best sense, in, the, in that you, you, what you've provided is not really a technical manual about AI that, that goes into various things. What you're talking about is something that, that you are very well positioned to do, which is to talk about the reception and how it is we can best incorporate AI into our world today. What led you to undertake a book about AI and that challenge that we face? Right, thank you, that's exactly it. I wanted to tell really a political history of science because I think that it's really important for the future of AI that we understand our past and we understand that great technological change has happened before and that we crucially try to learn lessons from those times. I mean, it's probably well known that Silicon Valley and the tech industry is not super familiar with that kind of humility that uh, thinks, well, some of this has happened before. <laughs> uh, maybe we can learn something. Um, and, and it's an understandable a desire to feel that everything that's happening is new um, and of course it is it is new and AI is very um, specific and exciting in its own ways but there there is plenty that we can learn from other industries and things that have happened um, before us and I think it was really it's my background in politics and and history I studied history at university uh, that gives me this sort of cross-disciplinary view um, I'm really conscious that these approaches from the humanities, from history and political science and economics and the social sciences have a huge amount to contribute to how we plan forward the future of technology because, you know, AI is a really important technology, but it's a social thing as well. You know, it's a very political um, movement as much as anything where we choose to apply AI, what we choose to fund and what we choose to build and what we choose not to fund and not to build um, is a political decision, really. Um, 
And so what I wanted to do was really look back and show how that had happened in the past. And that's what I do in the book is I say, well, you may know about the space race, but do you know about all the political machinations behind the scenes that led to the United Nations 1967 Outer Space Treaty and what that meant? It's not just about the technical achievement, though that was an amazing um, feat in and of itself, but it's also about the diplomacy and the politics and the socioeconomic effects happening um, behind the scenes. So I think that's why I wrote the book, because I felt that that was, frankly, a perspective that was kind of missing in the general discourse. It's a very relevant book. And reading it, uh, it, it was fascinating to think about some of the points you made and how it they, uh, they were especially relevant to the discourse that I see in the public today about AI, that there is a lot of discussion about the what, what AI could possibly deliver. There is, of course, a lot of anxiety about what will happen as a result of AI. And you begin your book by uh, going into a bit more detail based upon your familiarity with the subject as to how it is that, you know, how AI might might realistically change things. I mean, we're not talking about, say, uh, you know, necessarily Skynet or or uh, if for people of, 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 a, of an older age, you know, Colossus, uh, the computer, you, you're talking, you talk about what it real what AI currently promises and also how it is we're approaching. I was going to perhaps elaborate upon that as a way of framing how it is that we can then use the political history of, 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 of technology to uh, understand how we might best approach this challenge. Right. Well, there's um, there's a, a quote which I can't quite remember the, the person that said it now, so forgive me if that person is listening. But the quote <laughs> is something to the effect of, you know, it's always called AI until it works. And I think what that quote is trying to say is that something always seems mystical and magical until it's used in our everyday um, working and social lives and then it becomes quotidian you know and I was just um, I was just today reading an article about uh, data centers and the way that they um, you know pow power the internet and, and AI today and really if you had told people even a few decades ago if you you know pulled someone out of the 50s or 60s and told them about these undersea cables um you know trans <laughs> um, transmitting bits of light so that i can do a facetime with my cousin in australia you know that that would seem like sci-fi um and so what i try and do at the beginning of the the book is say that um that bring it down to reality you know bring it down to people's everyday reality and say ai is around all of us all the time already it is deciding often what we watch and what we listen to sometimes deciding maybe what email we see first. It's um, it's prevalent and pervasive already. And I think that sometimes talking about AI is this mystical far off, soon to be uh, one day achieved technology sometimes takes away from the fact that, that it's already here with us. And why that's relevant to political history is because of course, what we um, use AI for now is, as I was saying before, a very political decision. And the good news is that that means that we can change it if we don't like it. So 
um, you know, the book subtitle is how we can change AI's future and save our own. But really what that's saying is this is a choice. We do have levers at our disposal. And I show that with the um, examples that I use in the book, that technology is deeply political and influenced by the social and political and economic context of the time. And the positive news coming out of that is that well, that means we can look at what's influencing AI now. And if we think it should be something different, you know, we have ways to, to change that. But it does require people feeling some sense of ownership and empowerment to get involved in the AI discussion. And that requires bringing that discussion back down to earth. One of the things that I really enjoyed from the way you, you frame the political history of technology in your book is to point out that some people might feel that with AI all around us already, that the moment has passed, that we that we the window has 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 closed. But as you explain, it's it, the the way we dealt with this traditionally is sort of as an ongoing process. And I was thinking that curse comes through in your chapter on space exploration. We have Sputnik going up in 1957. Uh, we have uh, you know the people going up into space in '61, and it's yet it's not until about five or six years after that point that we have the emergence of the agreements that uh, govern uh, our engagement with outer space today. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon how that process of, of you know, engagement and, and, and outcome develops beginning with that period uh, before we see how it plays out in, in other areas of technology. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, there's no way to possibly know everything about technology in advance and therefore make decisions um, that decide how it will be used before we even know what's possible. But there are plenty of ways to set up mechanisms and processes that allow us to do that as we're going, you know, to to build the plane as we're flying it. Um you know, democracy and the political system is one of those ways at the very kind of grandest of, of levels. So I talk a lot about policymaking in the book. And um, uh, you know, I say uh, at the end of the book that in many ways, it's kind of a love letter to democracy and policymaking, because it's really amazing what we can achieve. And the space example is, is the perfect one. As you say, we have satellite technology uh, before we have Sputnik and we have Sputnik before we have the UN treaty and we have the UN treaty before we have the Apollo landings. So just because a technology already exists, that's no reason at all why we can't put certain um, perhaps limits on it or put it to certain uses, decide we want it to have a certain purpose and we don't want it to be used in other ways. That has happened throughout history with all manner of technologies. And so it's completely possible to do it now with AI. The next example that you focus on is one that I think demonstrates how uh, very nicely how it plays out in terms of the everyday engagement. We talk about space, but space is in so many ways uh, still very abstract to most people. I mean, we definitely benefit from it, but it's not something that that people are you know that that people are aware of directly impacting their lives. In your next chapter, though, you talk about uh, in vitro fertilization, and this is something that. Yeah, I, I think the the you know the result of what you described that chapter uh, highlights just how, in effect, uncontroversial it is today, or relatively uncontroversial in the sense that it was addressed. And yet, as you explained, when we talk about something which did have a direct impact upon the lives of you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to this day, 
in, in, in terms of the decisions they make. How you, you had this very controversial issue that ultimately you have this moving past the controversy to settlement. And you focus particularly upon Great Britain and, and how, uh, and, and as an American, I was you know unaware of how the, the debates I mean, I had I have a dim memory of the debates in the 1980s in the United States, but you describe how the debates in Britain were just as contentious and how eventually, you know, from that seemingly intractable issue, ultimately some sort of agreement was reached politically. Thank you. Yes, I I I think this is my favorite chapter. Um <laughs> Uh, because people um, don't often think about IVF and human embryology research as analogous to AI, but there's so much in biotechnology that is that is relevant. Um, so I did love writing the space chapter because I love that period of American history in the 1960s. I studied at university, actually, and <laughs> it gave an excuse to squeeze in references to uh, the Beatles, um, wherever I can. There's actually loads of references to the Beatles throughout the book. So <laughs> any <laughs> any fans out there can can count them all up, um, even secret ones. But but this chapter, um, I I really uh, you know I went I went into Margaret Thatcher's archives to look at this journey she went on from when the first baby was born using IVF in 1978 in the UK. Um, all the way to when the regulation was finally brought in in 1990. And, you know, the UK really goes on a journey. I mean, it's um, very interesting to see how people are very celebratory about that first birth in, in 1978 of Louise Brown, but unease creeps in and people start to worry, well, what does this mean? Um, and when they learn about human embryology research, that is the ability to try and, for example, prevent passing on hereditary diseases um, uh, through genetic um, editing, they get very worried and start to come up with all sorts of frightening scenarios uh, around, you know, designer babies. And it becomes, you know, it's a long time ago, so it becomes a sort of moral outrage and it's just really hard to believe now I think when IVF is just such a normal part of life that there was ever a time where it was controversial so I think it's um a fascinating example when you think about where we are with AI now which is that you know perhaps um unease is creeping in and people aren't sure where it's going to go and whether they're happy with it or not and what happened and you know there's more about this in the book but actually limits were put on human embryology research um, and a regulatory system was put in place and that did not stifle UK innovation. In fact, the life sciences is thriving in the UK, whereas in the US, and I, again, I write about this in the book, the, the different, the, you know, the contrast between the two, in the US, there wasn't that sort of democratic process of what society was comfortable with. Um, and as a result, the controversy around it continued on for, for many years, you know, right up to George W. Bush putting a ban on stem cell research, which was kind of, you can trace directly back to those kinds of conversations. So I think it's, um, I think it's very relevant to today and there's lots that we can learn. So I'm glad you enjoyed that chapter because it was, it was really enjoyable to write. Well, one of the things I, I also liked about it is 
it, how it demonstrated the sophistication in your approach. You're not saying in your book, let's just turn this over to the politicians because we can trust them. You point out, if, for example, in that chapter about how Enoch Powell was giving these speeches. And there was, I, I, I thought, you, you don't say this, but I, I, I was reading, I was thinking, he's kind of exploiting the issue to his own political benefit. I mean, I'm not saying that he didn't sincerely believe it, but there is an element of fear-mongering. And yet what stands out most in the chapter is how even though that element exists, and we're seeing it today in a lot of ways with AI, how ultimately they're, they're, the process you know, is able to uh, surmount that and address it successfully, maybe more uh, easily in the UK in that example than it was in the United States. But over time, you, know, you get past those, you know, disrupt those, those individual disruptions or those, well, my, and this may be a little too prejudicial, those bad actors. And the process does achieve some sort of compromise that allows development and innovation to move forward. Yes. I mean, that was fascinating. I didn't realize before I started the research that Enoch Powell had inserted himself into this conversation. For your listeners that don't know, he's an infamous, um, very racist, firebrand politician in the UK a very influential one, in fact, um, back back in the uh, uh, 60s, 70s, 80s. And um, he's towards the end of his career at this point in the 80s, but he tries to basically ban human embryology research. Um, and he uses it for his own sort of political ends. But what they're very successful at doing, I think, the government at the time is really eventually taking this out of politics. Um, and I, I haven't said this really explicitly in the book, but I think it's a real, um, caution to us today to not allow AI to become co-opted by one side or the other for their own political ends, because that is bad for science and that is bad for innovation. Um, so even while technology is inevitably political because of, um, as I say, what we choose to build and what we choose not to build, which is something, again, I talk about and related to the civil rights movement in this, and space in the first chapter, you, you want these decisions as far as possible to um, be taken out of that political arena if, if, if you can. So there are some lessons that I draw from that for, the, for, for AI and say, well, you know, in the UK, they brought in... Um, a, a group of people, including philosophers and lawyers and social workers, to to all come to a position um, on this that reflected society. And so there are ways of kind of thinking about what a good outcome might be that that don't have to be um, directly decided by whichever the politicians are that are in power that day. But that does in, in require the politicians of today to to see the technology as something that's this whole societal discussion and not make it um, something that is truly aligned with, with, with their side or the other, depending on how they feel about it, which, you know, <laughs> needs a, a level of noble political leadership that is not necessarily, you know, found in abundance at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other, the, the, uh, Next example that you use is is one that is a, a one with which I think people are very familiar, and that's the internet. 
And you break that example up in you that examination of of the of the sort of the political technology history of the of of, of the internet into two uh, separate chapters. And I, I thought it was very fascinating as I was reading them about how they do reflect this, you know, different perspectives and sort of different questions. And I thought it was really interesting how we see policymakers and politicians. Uh, sort of adapting to the different questions in as they're engaging with uh, both the changes in the technology and the changes in the questions that are being asked about it. Yes, and and this one really is a you know looks at geopolitics um, rather than national politics. Uh, although although there is um, the the national politics of America at the time that the internet is being built uh, through the fifties onwards yeah, is is really critical. And you're right, I decided to divide it into two chapters, the internet pre 9-11 and the internet post 9-11. <laughs> and that's because 9-11 is this huge moment for the development of the internet. And crucially, the political oversight and the political approach to the internet. Um, you had an approach before 9-11, which was kind of successive deregulation. Um, the internet was heavily associated with the kind of free market liberalism that was ascendant in the 90s with Clinton and Gore in the US, but really what was seen as this quote-unquote end of history moment post the Cold War when liberal democracies seemed to be in ascendance on the rise and solidifying its position globally. And after 9-11, as we all know, that tragic event had huge ramifications uh, way beyond the, the, the event itself. One of those was the internet and how the political um, factions in, in, in the US increasingly saw it as a tool of American uh, warfare as much as economic power as it had been seen before. Um, I worked in uh, politics when um, there were uh, in politics and in technology when there were increasing debates about online privacy and government access to data after the Snowden revelations. And um, you can see from what we find out later how much things changed um, post 9-11 with, with the sort of a clampdown. And so really how, what I use that example for is to, again, show that importance of um, geopolitics and national politics, so how a technology is shaped and how it's developed. And ultimately, we ended up with a good outcome um, with the internet. And you'll have to read the book to find out more <laughs> because it's very detailed. But we ended up with a good outcome because the Obama administration decided to honor the original aims and principles of the internet, which was that it would be sort of free from government control and sort of belong to a multi-stakeholder network of people willing to protect it and, and run it for the, for the benefit of everybody. And uh, that could quite easily have gone the other way had different people been in power. Indeed, we know because of things that he said at the time that uh, later to be president, but at the time businessman Donald Trump opposed what the Obama administration were, were doing, but it really protected the open internet in many ways. So I think 
that is uh, <laughs> another very relevant, highly relevant um, example to look at when we think about discussions around AI governance and, and regulation at that geopolitical level today. I'd like to address that uh, in uh, take the, that you just uh, that last part you described in a little bit greater depth because it really does frame your uh, your your final chapter the, the what lessons we should draw from this. How is it that these lessons really can inform uh, the the approach that we should be taking towards addressing AI? What 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 do they teach us that we that we can do and that we should do? And also, what do they teach us about what you know, we, we we shouldn't be doing well. I I I sort of divide the conclusion up into a few different lessons. Um, I won't go into all of them now, but there's a kind of an overarching theme that I think sums up a lot of it, which is this sense that um, technology is not just something that happens passively to us. It's something that we shape. You know, it's built by humans and it's used by humans and um, humans. Um, regulate, police, and decide on its use. And that really leads to the sort of title of the book, AI Needs You, because what I'm saying there is AI really needs involvement because otherwise it will be shaped just by the people closest to it now. And, you know, it's it's a pretty homogenous group of, of people that are involved in the AI uh, debate at the moment and who are building AI at the moment. And it would be much better for society if a much broader group of people were involved. And that's also because I think that the people who are really currently deeply using and affected by AI right now are not the people building it. But there's, you know, pe workers who are, you, you know, using AI or 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 having to use AI in their in their day to day jobs. I talk about Amazon delivery drivers and um, AI-enabled uh, monitoring of them. There's children in schools who have AI involved in their education. And so, you know, people are experiencing uh, experiencing the future now, if you like. Um, and it's those people that I really want to encourage to get involved in this debate. So what should they do? Um, there's, there's all sorts that I talk about in the book, but, you know, that can range from everything from direct democracy to engaging in negotiations and activism within a, a company or an individual school and um, you know what they shouldn't do I think is feel that this is a technology that's so opaque and so complicated and so difficult and unique that that it's not for them that it's not something that um, your average non-tech person can possibly ever understand because I hope if I show anything with the book it's that you don't need to understand the deep technical workings of a technology to understand how it's manifesting itself in the world and understand uh, and, it, and in order to understand the context in which it's being used. Um, you, you can see from the chapter on space that you do not need to know exactly how, uh, you know, <laughs> the Apollo mission <laughs> made it to the to the moon to understand the the, the sort of relevance of the UN treaty that deemed outer space to be the province of all mankind um, to see how that fit within that current political moment. So if we understand that technology is shaped by the values of the time, then what values are shaping AI today? Are you happy with that? Um, and if not, then there is 
all to play for now in getting involved in that discussion. And then there's that final message, which is implicit, which is that, you know, we can affect this through politics if we are able to stand up and and you know voice our 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 you know goals and and, and interests and concerns and, and that the mechanism to do this is ultimately through politics as imperfect as it might be yes and it obviously is imperfect i have a section in the conclusion called the red white and blue elephant in the room because <laughs> <laughs> you know the us is is certainly the country that will make a lot of the most impactful decisions when it comes to AI and obviously the political system is uh, go going through some unique challenges <laughs> at the moment and um, and so as, as much as we we can um, but it doesn't need to be on that grand political level you know I use the example in the book of the the A-level students in the UK so that's um, like high, high school students in the US who have their grades decided by um, a very crude algorithm. I mean, in a way you can you can barely call it AI, but but still it's an algorithm. And they protest against that and say, no, this isn't fair. This algorithm is not fair. It's a very simple one, so they can learn very quickly what's going into it and see how it's unfair and biased against certain people, certain schools. And they protest. They protest outside number 10 Downing Street and the decision is is reversed. And, you know, it's a very um, specific and extreme case, but that can be replicated in in many different arenas if if necessary. If you're not comfortable with how AI is being used in your workplace, in your kids' school, in your school, if you're a student still, um, and also I think not just in a negative sense of what do we want not to happen, but what do we want to happen? There's a huge moment at the moment, huge movement, at the moment uh, around. Uh, the climate crisis, and there are exciting uh, little examples um, scattered around of how AI might help us with, um, you know, making our data usage more efficient in a way that reduces emissions and so on. So, you know, there's also a demand to say, well, if if we're going to be investing all this money in AI, can we make sure that it's doing something that benefits the planet rather than something that perhaps um, doesn't? So it's 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 very much about about getting involved. And I hope what this book does is just allow people to be aware of that fact. And, and that's actually also a very radical act in itself. Just if you read the book, you're aware of how these decisions are being shaped. You're aware of um, how AI is being built now, both the good, uh, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> and um and that enables you to analyze critically any future interactions you might have with AI yourself. And, and that alone, I think, is, is very powerful just at the individual level. So it, it ranges in the book, everything from the grand geopolitics and international diplomacy down to, you know, just being uh, educated and feeling empowered. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, I've, um, I'm have i working on a new project at Cambridge University at the moment called the AI and Geopolitics Project. So I'm really leaning into that grand, uh, <laughs> grand scale of things um, because I think the current narrative around AI and geopolitics is sometimes uh, unhelpful. It's seen purely as this um, arms race between the US and China. And actually, I think there's room to see it as more of a cooperative and collaborative technology than than something that has to be solely about competition. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm starting next. But right now I'm just uh, taking 
uh, talking to people about this book. So thank you very much for the opportunity to do that. Well, it was our pleasure. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too, Mark. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you.